Hello and welcome to the Cambridge Judge Business Debate. My name is Michael Kitson and I'm an economist here at Judge Business School in Cambridge. In this series, specialists from the Cambridge Judge Business School and the wider Cambridge community discuss and debate topical issues of business and management. In today's session, we are focusing on technology and work. Simply, are we going to lose our jobs to the machines? We need to consider what is the future of work in an era of rapid technological change? What are the implications for economies? What are the implications for companies? And what are the implications for public policy? And I should add that it's appropriate that we're discussing work and technology today as at the time of recording, we are all self-isolating in Cambridge because of the COVID-19 pandemic. So please do bear that in mind when you're listening to this. This has been recorded through a new dimension for us. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce um, three guests today from the University of Cambridge. Uh, Dr. Kishore Sengupta is Reader in Operations Management at Judge Business School. Dr. Mia Gray is University Senior Lecturer at the Department of Geography at Cambridge University and is a Fellow of Girton College. And Dr. Stella Pahidi is University Lecturer in Information Systems at Judge Business School. So welcome to Kishore, Mia and Stella. Uh, perhaps really, really the, given, the, given the current circumstances, the, the first question would be, how's everybody coping with this current crisis? Uh, Kishore, how's it going for you? Uh, Michael, um, it's, it's going uh, under the circumstances. I have to say that uh, there are some good things, there are some bad things. Uh, first of all, I would like to say that uh, so far, uh, there has been nothing which is of a personal dimension. So I'm very, very thankful. Um, now, wh what does it mean for my work? I think uh, the last time that I had such uh, uh, un un uninterrupted blocks of time, I do not remember. So there's a lot of time to think, there's a lot of time to actually get uh, research done. And of course, uh, you know, the family self-isolating with me. So, uh, so, so we get to spend time together. Now, all of it is not uh, always productive. So for example, when you have so much time on your hands, suddenly you, you left uh, spinning your wheels, uh, uh, what, I called, uh, what I call the student syndrome. You know, you're goal plating, you're thinking about five different ways to write a sentence and that sort of a thing, right? Uh, the second thing, which I think I find a little bit uh, disorienting is, uh, relatively simple things take time to get done. So for example, if you're around the workplace, then you can talk to people, right? Uh, you, you get to find out what's happening. And if you, uh, if you, if you need someone's help, you can all, all you have to do is to uh, find the person and so on. So all of this is now very deliberate and, 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 and this requires a level of what you might call action, which I think I find a little bit uh, uh, surprising a little bit. And then finally, uh, sort of, uh, you know, I don't get to see my colleagues. And uh, this is a hugely pleasurable part of what we do for a living. And this I miss very, very much, so. Amir, how's it for you? I'm doing all right. Uh, I mean, luckily, again, I have um, family and friends in, in, in good health. I find um, working from home has been interesting. I did my first PhD Viva by Zoom the other day. Um, it is interesting kind of reflecting on how this has changed our relationship to technology itself. I think the early enthusiasm a lot of my colleagues and I had about, oh, we can do conferences through Zoom and we can do this through Microsoft Teams has faded a bit because it takes, it does seem to take in a way a lot of emotional labor actually to make it kind of function well. Um, so interesting kind of things to learn on the side, I think, as Kishore mentioned. Uh, and Stella, we know it's been a particularly difficult time for you. Yes, uh, so it's a it's a it's an interesting time, I would say. Um, in in general, I work a lot from home. Um, 
However, these are unprecedented times. Um, on one hand, um, having to work from home in parallel with taking care of 20-month-old uh, twins, quite a challenge. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, uh, I do have uh, family members uh, who are not well. My father is currently in the ICU in Greece. So it's, um, it's, it's definitely something that is affecting uh, my emotional state and, and thus the work, uh, evidently. Uh, but um, uh, further than that, as I said, I, I tend to work a lot from home, work remotely with uh, my colleagues. My co-authors are uh, in different countries, so we've always had to work uh, online and write papers uh, remotely. Um, but um, this is, there's definitely a different situation right now, I think, for uh, everyone. And um, I'm really curious to, to hear other people's uh, opinions about that. Uh, I think there's lots that we will learn about uh, work uh, in different ways through this crisis. Uh, but I am also uh, hoping that uh, some of those things will not be repeated after this crisis is uh, over. Well, well, thank you for joining us, Stella, particularly in this difficult time for you and your family. And we really hope that everything goes OK. Thank you. For you and particularly your father. Um, if we think about perhaps moving beyond, we'll come back to the current crisis, but if moving beyond the current crisis, there's much discussion about how, how technology may change the way we work. And it obviously is changing it literally as we speak. Um, it'd be useful to start with some clarification about what technological changes we're talking about, because they often just merge into one. I mean, there's automation, there's artificial intelligence. What, could somebody give us some clarification about the technologies here that we're talking about. Mia. Um, oh, sorry, Kishore. No, 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 it's, it's all right. Sorry, Mia. Mia, if you want to go ahead. Well, I just um, thought, I was particularly going to pick on Mia because I know that you've recently edited a, a special issue of the Cambridge Journal of Regions Economy Society on this issue. Yeah, um, that's right. About it a lot. And, and that, that is available online if, if people want to, to look at it. So um, perhaps just to kick off with you, Mia, and I'll come back to you, Kishore. Yeah, it is interesting because I think a lot of our new technological changes do get kind of conflated. Um, and there's so many different permutations um, that, that we can think about. I think people often use AI, which has a, you know, um, artificial intelligence, which has a very specific kind of definition um, as a catch-all to, to kind of talk about all this technology and technological change. But for the sake of brevity, we can kind of define it as a set of technologies that really starts to imitate intelligent human behavior. And that's really, you know, you can see that as kind of maybe one side of, of, of a spectrum where we might move then to machine learning, um, where, you can have systems that actually um, improve from experience without being explicitly programmed automatically. Um, and and um, so this can kind of access large databases and kind of learn to use it for themselves. Often what people are talking about when they say AI, and we found this in a lot of the um, uh, studies that were part of this special issue, was that uh, people would talk about automation as AI. Now automation is a system of technology that, that um, allows a machine to perform a process on programmable commands. And it combines feedback controls and um, 
execute according to programmed instructions. So, you know, robots are, are kind of the, the thing we probably think of when we talk about automation. So, you know, there, there's um, that whole kind of spectrum of, of different technologies that people often conflate when they talk about AI. Kishore. So let me try and uh, sort of uh, put some categorization in here and then, then maybe uh, sort of say a couple of things. Uh, so I think of technologies uh, in terms of uh, three different categories, right? One is the here and now, which is the technologies that we use to get our work done. So we are talking the cloud, we are talking about, for example, we are on a video conference platform right now. We talk about instant messages. Uh, we are talking about uh, ways in which we can co coordinate, communicate, and make sure that our work gets done. So what I call technology for work, technology for office work, technology for work as such, uh, bringing people together, right? The second category is really uh, automation. Now, uh, what do I mean by that? I mean um, things which uh, people used to do. Some, some variation of that is now done uh, through systems. Now, not all of it is manual. A lot of it is still electronic, but things get done, right? So that's the second category. And the third category, I think, is specialized technologies where you have technologies such as AI, machine learning, which do things, uh, make decisions that earlier were the provenance of human beings. Uh, so two examples here. Uh, one is about, uh, for example, decisions uh, that get made uh, in, in, in many, many domains, increasingly the medical domain, uh, which really get done by, uh, by, 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 by technological means uh, through machine learning. And the second domain I would say is uh, something which is emerging, it's not quite ready. Uh, is autonomous vehicles, for instance, and these are things that human beings have done uh, for the longest period of time. So I think, I think, I think, in, in trying to sort of provide uh, some some degree of clarity, uh, I think of these in three different buckets. I will say, however, that I think many of these distinctions are getting blurred. So, for example, uh, you know, uh, like all of us, I use email, I use uh, the cloud, I use messaging, and I use notes, right? And increasingly, I find that I can I can connect things in such ways. Uh, that this is not just a function of systems talking to each other, it's a little bit of AI as well along that, right? So, so I think things are coming together and there's a notion of convergence that I would also, also like, to, like to suggest. Okay, Stella. Yeah, I think I, 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 I fully agree with, uh, with the categorization uh, that Kishore said. And also, the, uh, I agree, as Mia said, there is a lot of confusion on, on how people tend to use those terms and try, try to make sense of them. Right now, quite often in the in the, in the academic community uh, uh, as well, uh, especially when it comes to social scientists or organizational scientists who are trying to grasp what the impact of all those technologies uh, is, uh, without fully understanding the, the technologies. Uh, so I think uh, the, the categorization uh, uh, that Kishore has given us helps a lot. Uh, if I build upon that a bit, I would say. What is difference here? Because obviously we have had uh, process automation, uh, at least um, with or without robots uh, for, uh, for several years. Where the difference is, as, um, as both me and Kishore uh, have already started pointing out, the impact on human judgment uh, tasks, which, are, uh, which can now be automated. And we're not talking about simple uh, simple tasks like doing some calculation, estimating certain alternatives, but uh, uh, the technology 
has uh, is developing uh, so rapidly that it uh, in certain tasks it could it can already imitate a more complex human judgment process and it will be able to imitate more and more uh, and uh, this is where it gets I think interesting and different because we see now more automation of what I would call knowledge work um, uh, and, uh, and and that's that's what uh, what makes it quite interesting and different in nature from what we have seen uh, thus far uh, since the industrial age so just as it, would everybody agree this era is different to other eras of technological change I mean, as Stella was saying we've seen major eras major shifts since the industrial revolution I mean is, there, is this way anything different to what we've seen in the past yeah Kishore uh, so, so yeah, I, I agree completely. I think uh, uh, sort of uh, let me try to build on it a little bit. Uh, so with an example, and then I'll get to my point. Uh, so last year I was in the Silicon Valley and I talked to some startups and I work a lot with lawyers. So one of them is a legal startup and they showed me a cognitive robot. Now, what does it do? Uh, imagine that uh, there's a piece of judgment that's been handed down, handed down by the Supreme Court. And there are hundreds of cases uh, that, is, that it has finally resolved with this judgment, right? So what you have is now suddenly all the cases which have been uh, done in the lower courts fall into two categories, good law and bad law. These are just terms that lawyers use. I have nothing to do with it, right? Uh, now, uh, there, are, there are three things in here. One is, can you interpret uh, the judgment and actually make out what it is? Second is, can you then trawl through the huge database of hundreds of cases, maybe thousands, and categorize them into good law and bad law, right? Okay, uh, or actually the second step is, can you even figure out which judgments apply? And then third is the categorization. Now, uh, the robot, uh, after some training, uh, does the first job very, very well with 90% accuracy. Does it get to the substance of what the Supreme Court has decided? 90% accuracy. Second, uh, can it trawl through uh, the huge database of cases and categorize um, them into cases that apply and cases that don't apply? 90% accuracy. And number three, can it then separate good law from bad law? The answer is about two thirds. Now, there you go. And this is all work that needs to be done by lawyers, right? Now, uh, lawyers who are highly paid, as it turns out. Now, should lawyers run for the hills? I don't think so. I think underlying all this is a notion of what I call structurability. Anything that can be structured in some fundamental way is amenable to first automation, you know, Stella talked about process automation. Second is AI decision-making. And third is eventually the work getting done mostly by human beings. But then everything else is left, which is not structured. So what I'm suggesting is that it's different this time because the boundary of what you call what human beings do and what computers do has shifted. And it has shifted in ways that people like you and me are concerned about, uh, the professionals with degrees, lawyers, doctors, uh, and so on. So. That, that, that nicely leads into the, to the next question, I think. Is it, what is the impact going to be on work? I mean, who, who is going to gain? Who's going to lose out? Which jobs are going to be destroyed? Which jobs are going to be created? I mean, these are I know, big issues, but you may have some insights on, on, on these factors. Uh, Mia, you've, you've edited a special issue all about work and technology. You must know I the have. answer. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Uh, so much of it, I think, also going back to your question before as well is, you know, to what extent does technological change kind of uh, make that difference? And, and, you know, at what scale are we talking about? It's so difficult to really get a, 
handle on. You know, when you asked your former question, I was thinking back to Robert Solo's famous quip, you know, that you can see the computer everywhere, but in the productivity statistics. And, you know, and that was true in the 70s and the 80s. But of course, eventually, we did see the productivity increases from, from kind of the IT revolution, but it had a time lag and diffusion rates were really uneven. And not all the innovation that was made was, you know, the investments themselves weren't all productive. And I think, you know, when we're trying to figure out kind of what's happening in work here, I think, you know, we might be saying a lot of the same things going on in a way, right? Because, um, you know, to what extent does this new technology create or destroy jobs? Um, you know, is it all about automated tasks uh, or is it about making uh, human labor more productive and increasing labor demand? And, and there's no yes or no answer here, right? It depends. And, and you know, there's been these wild predictions, um, both in the academic kind of circles and in these um, different consultancy firms as well. So, you know, from, from predictions have ranged from about 45% of all jobs that would be lost to about 10%. And some scholars, I think this is some of the scholars writing in our special issue were arguing actually that um, uh, you might not have job loss at all. Um, someone like Nancy Lee was actually thought that automation uh, in the US has really boosted regional employment growth in the USA. But other people like um, um, Gary Spencer um, was arguing that, you know, AI technologies actually may lead to a proliferation of low-income, low-skilled jobs. So when, uh, you know, here, here we're thinking that um, AI may wipe out low-income jobs. Well, their study actually found in countries where uh, labor productivity is low anyhow, that you actually might get uh, AI technologies that actually increase the number of low-skilled jobs. So, you know, it's very, it's not something we can kind of read off of um, our industrial mix or something like that. There are all sorts of ways, I think, in which the technical and social and organizational structure of work um, profoundly really, you know, affects how firms use technologies like AI and automation and machine learning. You know, there's both the specifics of the firm, managerial decisions and what they face in terms of which workforce skills are available. Also kind of existing investments, lock-in and those sort of issues but also public policy and how policy kind of um, encourages one sort of firm response or another, the economic geography of places within which firms are making these decisions. So, there, you know, there's so many kind of different things going on um, that, that it's, it, it's not something you can easily read off kind of the, the kind of existing industrial mix. That's very very interesting. There, let's unpack a little bit of those. But but Stella, particularly on the issue of of work 
of the jobs that will be I, actually I think it's probably easier it's, it's difficult but, but it's easier to understand which jobs will be lost than which jobs will be created yeah jobs, jobs have often been destroyed we can see but say well the low skilled jobs may be destroyed or no technology skills. But if you go back, if you go back 20 or 30 years ago, many of the jobs we see today didn't exist in the UK. I mean, there are people now who are social media influencers. I don't, don't know what that means. Uh, there are personal trainers. We didn't have personal trainers in the, in the 80s. I don't remember. There are people employed, not at the moment, but prefer the crisis, as dog walkers. I mean, mm -hmm. nobody employs somebody to... These are, these are jobs you never foresee being produced, but, the, but they've, they've, they, new jobs have emerged. So actually... The net effect, it's very disrupting, but the net effect of technology has been to generate jobs in most cases, but certainly to generate productivity in most cases, but been very disruptive for some parts of society. Sorry, Stella, you want to come in here? Yeah, so, um, so it's interesting. A couple of years ago, the debate was really around the loss of the jobs. Uh, there was this famous study, I think, done in Oxford uh, by Frey and Osborne. Mm -hmm. um, I guess everyone, everyone has read it, everyone has cited it uh, somewhere that was uh, making uh, predictions uh, uh, on which, uh, which jobs would be lost, which professions uh, would be most affected uh, by computerization. Uh, now the debate has shifted a lot, and I think that's that's good. Uh, first of all, I think, as Mia said, um, it's it's complicated. You cannot really uh, uh, make such uh, accurate predictions. Second, uh, it's it, it's not as much about certain jobs being lost. There's thing, I think we will see we will see quite a lot of de-skilling, but we will also see a lot of upskilling of several uh, occupations. Uh, uh, where basically um, the, the, the skills that people will uh, need to, uh, to acquire will be different and the nature of their work is going to fundamentally change, uh, which is one of the reasons why I think we need a lot of qualitative uh, research, a lot of ethnographic work to get done. Uh, we need people to go and actually see in practice how those technologies are used, how they are uh, implemented uh, to and better understand how they affect the work. To give you an example, a colleague of mine uh, in the Netherlands is uh, doing uh, research with the Dutch police. Uh, they've been uh, looking at, uh, she and her colleagues have been looking at uh, predictive policing. Uh, she joined for uh, about three, uh, she spent about three years in the police on the ground together with police officers to see how they used uh, artificial intelligence uh, in, um, to support basically their judgment processes and their decision-making processes about where they would need to, um, which, are, which are the neighborhoods that they will have to uh, go and make an intervention, a police intervention. And what she has seen is that there's uh, different roles emerging um, of uh, uh, people who are, uh, for example, sort of in the middle, let's say let, we could call them boundary spanners, uh, people who are uh, between the uh, data scientists and analysts and uh, the police officers who are on the ground and who, uh, whose job is to try and translate uh, the, the, the insights from the AI um, to uh, actual decisions. This is an example of a new role uh, that is currently emerging, for example, in the, in the police domain. And uh, we, I think, um, and uh, Kishore may, um, may also have more experience on that, in law firms we see something similar uh, where we have data scientists joining law firms um, trying to support in uh, the preparation of evidence for cases or um, 
in the processing of contracts, etc. But you still need to have people who sort of sit in the middle and uh, participate uh, and uh, and help uh, facilitate the collaboration between uh, the uh, the, uh, the data scientists, uh, the legal engineers, and the lawyers. Um, so uh, definitely new roles. Um, also new roles. Uh, I think there's uh, there's interesting articles that come out uh, every now and then uh, in a, a MIT Technology Review, uh, MIT Sloan Management Review, etc., uh, which actually talk about as you, as as you said, Michael, the uh, the creation of new uh, uh, professions of uh, um, so. Uh, of, of, of new types of occupations, maybe not professions uh, per se, but um, where you have people, for example, who um, uh, need to process the insights of the technology that uh, processes images. Um, similarly, I think in the field of radiology, you will see the, the, uh, the radiologist's uh, job is not going to vanish. Um, but uh, the, the way in which they do their work, the nature of their work is definitely changing because they use the AI to support the diagnosis process. But they still need to be there and make sense of the uh, diagnostic uh, results uh, of, the, of the machine. They cannot just automate everything in the machine. Another interesting thing is you mentioned the low skills, but uh, uh, I think Talking about low and high skills may not be a category that helps us here. Uh, for example, the, uh, the, the occupations that will most probably not be affected by technology are occupations like uh, plumbing, um, uh, uh, cooking, uh, occupations that do need a certain expertise and which cannot be easily automated uh, uh, by uh, an algorithm. Yeah. Um, those are uh, uh, definitely not knowledge intensive tasks, but are tasks that do require some expertise, that do require a lot of contextual uh, knowledge and understanding. Uh, and uh, those very manual uh, jobs will not be replaced by robots uh, anytime soon. I think we, 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 we're acutely aware of that in the current crisis about what the important jobs are. Uh, and, it's, it's, and it's not necessarily the ones definitely. that are highly trained. <laughs> It's very not in, yeah. all, not in all cases, may I add. Um, Kishore, um, your view on, on the impact on the labor market. Okay, so I'll try to be quick. And uh, <clears throat> I remember once you had mentioned that economists uh, tend to make very bold predictions, uh, even when they know they are going to be wrong, right? Uh, so the question is not uh, whether they are wrong or right, by, by how wrong, right? Uh, and the idea is that that leads us to think in certain ways. Um, so I'm going to channel my inner economist and make some very bold predictions. Uh, they're all going to be wrong, I think. Uh, so then we can have uh, meet uh, 10 years later and just find out how wrong they are, right? <clears throat> so here we go. Uh, I think prediction number one is education, and I'm talking of higher education, as we know it, is going to shift fundamentally. Uh, I saw a paper last year about the number of universities in the United Kingdom and how many uh, do we really need? Uh, let me be blunt. And I think, I think the numbers were actually quite staggering. Uh, what has happened, I think, in the last 20 years is that uh, the way to get better jobs, the way to get uh, sort of higher up in any, any sort of a hierarchy was uh, through getting a university degree. And I think what's going to happen is that <clears throat> I think organizations are going to look for skills. They are going to look for specific uh, attributes rather than university degrees. Uh, so I suspect what's going to happen is down the line is that 
you're going to have this uh, weaning out, right? Uh, university degrees are going to be for specific uh, jobs. Uh, for many other jobs, I think we're going to see, and I, I already see this, uh, we're going to see a return to uh, the noble uh, <clears throat> discipline of being an apprentice, uh, where people have uh, very specific vocational skills that they bring in, bring to bear, right? Uh, the number two prediction I would make is this, that I don't think it's a matter of skills. Uh, I think what's going to happen is, I think you have to add one more thing. How long is the skill going to last? Nuclear physicists talk about the half-life of radioactive elements. So I'm going to talk about the half-life of any skill. I trained as an accountant and uh, in the career that I've had, I've never used it, but if I wanted to, <clears throat> I could have made a very nice living uh, for essentially my entire career. I don't think that's going to happen anymore. I think people who learn the law, learn, learn accounting, learn all of these things, know that somewhere down the line, these skills are going to be less relevant. So they'll have to reskill, they'll have to upskill. So <clears throat> I think the second prediction therefore is any skill that we have, I think we need to, um, if not change, we need to refresh in ways that we generally have not done in the past. I think so these are the two predictions that I'd like to make in terms of how work changes, what the skills are, and therefore what we, what we bring to bear to that. Yeah. So, so in many cases, there's going to be new ways of working for us all. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stella, you, you work on this area. Yeah, so, um, uh, so uh, obviously, yes, uh, uh, we, we've been talking about AI, but uh, as, as Kishore said, uh, uh, there's other types of technology as well that are fundamentally affecting uh, how we work. Uh, quite interestingly, um, lately in a, an unprecedented, uh, on an unprecedented pace. Uh, so I think for us academics, working from home is, is not that uh, new. Uh, what is new is uh, perhaps uh, doing lectures uh, online. Some of us uh, already uh, uh, did those lectures at the end of the long term. Uh, but uh, in, in, other, in other areas, it's, it's quite interesting. It's definitely uh, uh, new. And um, um, we, uh, um, we will, I think the, the, it's interesting, a lot of firms will realize how easy it is to use uh, technology uh, in order to support work and, uh, um, and how cost efficient it is, right? Because when we talk about new ways of working at the end of the day, uh, what this means is reducing the costs uh, of, the, of the firm and um, uh, uh, um, having to, uh, to occupy fewer than the office because more people can work remotely uh, from home uh, and so forth. Uh, so um, technology is is affecting us uh, in uh, in those ways, uh, and I think there are some interesting paradoxes. Those are things that I have been seeing with my researcher uh, that I have been reading in colleagues' papers as well, uh, where um, on one hand technology is is connecting us, for example, but at the same time. Uh, there's, uh, um, it, it also reveals uh, um, our differences. And st strangely, we, we often may blame the technological uh, uh, problems for the technical problems for not being able to collaborate uh, to cover up more deeper collaboration issues that we uh, may be facing in terms of uh, having uh, different worldviews, uh, um, different uh, understandings, because we work, we may work in a different domain, or maybe social boundaries, especially when when you look at um, 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 
um, outsourcing, for example, there's, there's always boundaries going on and people just try to blame the technology when the, the issues are deeper. Interestingly, I recently read an article uh, uh, that uh, was talking about uh, how right now people try to blame the technology again uh, for the difficulties they're facing to get their work done uh, when in practice there's deeper issues uh, that uh, they are facing um, because of the uh, self-isolation, possibly because of grief, uh, trying to make sense of the situation, uh, etc. But it is uh, here, it is supporting us. Uh, we, we are able to do lectures online, we are able to write papers online, work on documents uh, together. Uh, some people are, have been doing this for years. I am doing a research study of a collaboration of uh, scientists. Uh, it's a collaboration of 1300 physicists uh, spread across the world and uh, they have been making huge discoveries that have already been awarded with a Nobel Prize um, by just working remotely. So the tools are here and uh, hopefully we can put them in better use um, in uh, more and more areas. And we can do nice things uh, with them as well. Nia, new ways of working. Is that the area you've, you've, you've informed, your research is informed on? Well, well, we have done a bit of that, Michael. It, it, it's really interesting to hear Stella's insights there. Um, you know, uh, some of our own research uh, looked at these um, teams of electrical engineers around the world and the ways in which they manage these projects together from a distance. And it was interesting because I think, you know, some connections between international groups were very close, were, especially if they already knew each other and if the firm had spent lots of resources to make sure that they had these personal connections already. Um, some of the issues that came up were kind of very based uh, in cultural differences and in, in, in different kind of high-tech industrial regions having very different ways of working. Um, in some of the firm's um, sites in Silicon Valley, uh, no one took their holidays. They had British quite generous holidays. Um, in the British um, part of the firm, of course, everyone took everything that they had. and. Uh, <laughs> You know, there were real kind of cultural differences in, in how you worked, how you were expected to kind of interact. Um, but also one of the big things, and I think, you know, it also reminds us that technology is an enabling thing, but not deterministic, is that um, relationship with your manager became really important, both because um, some managers wanted to see people and felt more in control and able to kind of see what the score was if if people kind of came in rather than were working remotely. Um, and, and there were lots of issues around that. Um, and also if these relationships were not already kind of cemented and then these teams were working internationally, that was really problematic. And um, you know, so one of the articles in this new special issue in the um, Cambridge Journals of Regions, Economy and Society talks very explicitly about the ways in which certain jobs get reworked. So um, new ways of working very much being about the kind of 
reconstruction of certain occupations. So, um, you know, I think this, this we've already had, some, you know, some, some kind of examples earlier about how, Stella, I think it was you were talking about the radiologists and the ways in which um, part of what was routine is no longer part of their routine. They are just overseeing rather than kind of doing it themselves. And I think that sort of thing is what we're going to see more and more of in, in terms of um, new ways of working. That um, occupations themselves is not about kind of the job loss or gain within that occupation, but these occupations are going to be kind of fundamentally reworked. And, um, and again, I think we already have a taste of that in many occupations, but it's hard to predict all the ways in which that kind of comes about. Let, let, let me let me just thank you for that, Mia. Let me just move on to a, just a couple of final questions because it, it picks up on that new ways of working. Even though we're all stuck at home, I know some of us have got meetings in about five or six minutes' time. Probably find this platform or other platforms are available. Um, so I, I'm conscious of that, but I did want to pick up on a, another couple of things, if I may. Um, the first one is what is the impact of these changes that we're seeing and that may emerge on public policy? I mean, is, is there, are there going to be impacts on competition? Are there going to be impacts on inequality? I.e., if you own the technology, you'll get the rewards. And if you don't own the technology, you won't. So there are big potential challenges. How does public policy respond to these technological changes? Is there a need for new policies? Is there a need for new regulations? Is there a need perhaps for even redistribution policies if, if the rewards go to the owners of the technology and not necessarily the labor in some instances? So I'm going to... Kishore, we'll kick off on this one for me, please. Okay, so thank you. Thank you, Michael. Uh, maybe what I can do is uh, suggest uh, four different ways in which public policy uh, needs to respond. And, and I think the point I'm making is uh, if there was any doubt whatsoever that there would be big implications on public policy, I think that doubt is now gone uh, with, with, with the current pandemic. So I would suggest that there are four things that uh, we can do in terms of public policy. And let me not touch on the universal income bit because I think that's a whole different uh, topic altogether. I think uh, number one is about enabling access. Uh, so we already see that there's a digital divide. We already see that there are big differences in technology skills and they have very little to do with um, what you might call where you live and so on. Uh, there, there is a big divide. So what can governments do? What can public policy do in order to enable access is number one. I'm not saying equality of access. What I am saying is enablement of access, right? To different kinds of technology skills. I think that's easier to do now than it was about five years ago. Uh, look at the wonderful um, online offerings that uh, many institutions had. So that's number one. I think number two is what I would call enabling opportunity. Now, I just don't see any option but to institute big projects from the point of view of the government. Historically, when we've had situations like these, governments have done Marshall plans or the other, other, other kinds of things. I think the real question now is, what will public policy do in such a way that we enable opportunities, create jobs, uh, create new infrastructures, digital infrastructures, technology infrastructure in such a way that they not only enable people to participate, but also create all kinds of opportunities for that. And that has uh, been very useful in times of discontinuity. And I would, I would say that we need that, right? Number three is enabling protection. And what I mean is, um, this is I'm talking about, are we going to be able to protect educational access to everyone, which is a bit different from enabling access to technology skills. I'll be able to uh, provide healthcare in such a way that people don't really have to worry about, uh, you know, 
do I have healthcare? Do I have social services? Can I just focus on the skills that I need to learn as opposed to I have to go work because, and therefore I, I, I cannot learn new skills. And I think the fourth one, which is very close to my heart, maybe now is not the right time to talk about it, but uh, what you see is the panopticon at work. Uh, surveillance, uh, we are trying to track cases, we are trying to trace, we are trying to figure out who's uh, out, of, out of the outer form and who's sunbathing and this and that and the other. All of that is fine, but if this becomes the new normal, any notion of privacy is essentially gone. So I think that's a fourth uh, mandate that public policy has. Are we gonna enable rights to privacy or are we gonna just say that, well, not anymore? Right? Stella, do you have any views on the role of public policy here? Uh, I, I fully agree on, uh, on, on Kishore's uh, uh, categories. If I, if I added one more, that would be explainability. That's something that is already uh, 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 debated a lot on, uh, on the public policy level. Um, uh, let me try to explain, especially when it comes to uh, AI. Uh, the issue is, uh, uh, what is different here is uh, um, the, the algorithms uh, behind the AI technology are not as straightforward as uh, uh, they have been with uh, previous technologies. What this means is that quite often, um, even the developers themselves who have developed uh, the AI algorithm cannot fully explain uh, why the algorithm came to a specific uh, prediction or a specific recommendation. And that is an issue. Uh, imagine if, for example, uh, we have an AI system uh, deciding about uh, um, um, uh, so, um, a, a prisoner's uh, parole uh, case. Um, how can you uh, explain uh, if someone uh, gets parole and uh, later on they commit a crime or if someone is not granted parole just because the system says, well, this person has very high uh, likelihood that they will commit a crime again. Um, in, in, in such cases or in medical cases and so forth, uh, especially uh, where uh, the decisions are critical, you need to be able to understand uh, why uh, the system comes to a certain decision if you uh, allow uh, the system to make the decisions. So there is a very large debate going on uh, and the EU, uh, uh, the European Commission has, uh, is, uh, is already producing uh, draft documents around this uh, towards more explainable AI where um, there, there, there will have to be rules about when you implement such systems where um, the, there will need to come, at, uh, you, the system will also need to produce an explanation together with a decision uh, to help uh, uh, humans uh, better figure out why it is uh, calculated uh, in this way. I think it's a very interesting observation, Stella, that perhaps the most powerful people in the future may be the people writing the algorithms. Um, yeah. And if they, if they have biases or prejudices, they get embedded in the algorithm and that's, that's a serious concern. Um, on this issue about policy, I'm going to come to me on this one. I agree. I think the whole, the, there's so many different ways we can think about policy, but the whole issue of bias is really important because right now there's not a lot of accountability um, or public purpose in the development and spread of these technologies. And um, so there is mounting pressure to make these algorithms, you know, fair and transparent, understandable, and therefore more accountable. I think it's kind of interesting because right now the main actors are in the private sector and the development of AI is still 
relatively unregulated. So, um, yeah, you know, the laws and regulatory structure around AI and the public interest are still quite embryonic and, and, and only advisory. Uh, unlike, let's say, in, in kind of um, uh, biotechnology and em embryo kind of um, uh, science where there's kind of quite a strong regulatory structure. Um, so we can kind of, um, that, that's certainly one thing that I think we, we can think about. Another thing, this is kind of the argument I think about public policy made by Darren um, uh, Esamoglu is that right now we are through public policy subsidizing a lot of automation um, and that it's not necessarily that we're, we're focused on, um, you know, productivity increasing forms of AI and that our public policy through kind of taxation and subsidies could be much more targeted to kind of promote the types of AI, what, what, what uh, Asa Moglu calls the, the right types of AI, but that, that idea that, that there may be um, a, a public purpose there that, that we may want to kind of think through more carefully and kind of use policy to promote certain parts of the industry more than others. And then finally, I think also we can kind of think about um, uh, the kind of earlier comments with that we were talking about kind of these shifts in higher education. I think, you know, the ways in which we may as a society need kind of more retraining and um, uh, help and support in kind of changing our working careers and patterns um, brings up big policy issues about who is paying for this. Is this a public sector education function or is it within firms? Um, and how is that structured and in what way? Um, and, you know, these are issues that were quite big 20, 30 years ago, and they've kind of faded, I think, from public view. And I think we may well need to kind of revisit them. I think th these are very, very important issues and very big issues. And, and, and perhaps they are a topic for another podcast because I'm, I'm conscious that we're we're running out of time and people need to rush not physically from their room they stay in the same room and rush to another platform but I do want to ask one final question and perhaps a brief answer from you all is that we are in this current crisis will we return to the normal after this crisis or will things permanently change particularly in the way of technology and work but perhaps in the other aspects of the way we do things in our social working and private lives do you see any permanent changes from this current crisis or whether it would just be a temporary shock? Um, Kishore, first of all. Okay, so uh, I think some things will change uh, forever. Uh, and, and I think what's going to happen is that I think many of these uh, dynamics that uh, we have set in place uh, are going to be there. But I think uh, the, the thing that is going to be critical is to develop leaders who will then provide the anchor, the stability around which you can make all of these changes. Because if, if there is no leadership, then I think there is no organization. If there is no direction, there is no nothing, right? So I think, I think that doesn't change. And that remains as critical as ever. And that needs to be much more stable, much more fixed. So, so it's a bit of both, but I don't think we'll ever come back to, let us say, December 2019. Okay, very interesting. Stella. Uh, I, I agree with Kishore. I feel, I feel that this is, a, this is a time where uh, we are really testing things and acceler accelerating how to get things done with technology, things we had been sort of, you know, grappling with for a, for a while, 
And right now, because we have to, to get it done, we do take a deep dive and do it. So um, there's definitely, we, we will be different when we move to the other side, which I do hope will be soon for other reasons. But uh, yeah. Final comments from you, Mia, on this. I wonder if there's not a bit of a pushback to technology from this experience, because in my own circle of um, social scientist uh, colleagues, the, the early embrace of, of these kind of new ways of interacting is already kind of three weeks in, kind of already producing kind of a backlash and people are like, oh, I can't bear this and that and it's so much work and it's exhausting and you know I, so it may well function in the end to really make us think through you know what didn't work and what worked what was positive about it um so um you know a, a, as a university teacher i think well it's interesting kind of the the online lectures and the at Cambridge, the online supervisions, the small group teaching that has happened. Um, you know, certainly many universities have much more experience, I think, with it than we do. We've always prided ourselves on this small group teaching experience. And, and it's interesting kind of um, uh, what works in it, in, in that it's doable, people can be anywhere, the flexibility of it but also the, the drawbacks that, that it is hard and it both takes intellectual labor and emotional labor to really make it work, I think, um, online. Well, I think, I think it is all difficult times for, for, for all of us being, being academic, academic uh, um, sector or in other sectors of the economy. We're all very, very, very difficult times, both economically, socially, and sort of most importantly in terms of health. So I particularly like, uh, we're running out of time now to thank our three guests, Dr. Kishore Sengupta, Dr. Mia Gray and Dr. Stella Pahidi. Particularly thank you coming and engaging in this. And it's the first time we've done it through this forum. Particularly thank you doing it through this very, very difficult times for you all. Particularly thank you to Stella. We know it's particularly challenging. We all wish your father good health and a good and speedy recovery. And we know it's a very difficult time for you. Thank you. So, so thank you all for coming. Um, just to remind you that um, Mia is an editor of one of the special issues on this topic for, for the uh, Cambridge Journal of Regions, Economy and Society. Uh, and that's currently available on the Oxford University Press website. So lots of interesting articles there. Um, thank you called, for joining um, If I can put in a plug, Michael, it's called When Machines Think for Us. Think for us. Consequences for uh, work and place. Okay, so I gave a plug and you gave a plug. So being double plugged. So um, it's available on the OUP website. Um, Plenty of time to read it at the moment. Um, thank you for joining us. Um, I hope you can join us next time. And most importantly, look after yourselves and your family.